What do you think about when you think about baptism? Uh, Hollywood has done a, a lot of visual imagery uh, that has portrayed baptism in water, going underneath, coming up, beginning again. Uh, I've seen people treat baptism as like a lucky rabbit's foot. Uh, basically, my luck can't get much worse. It's worth a try. Why don't you put me under the water? Um, I've seen people describe it as a rite of passage. It's like, oh, you're 12, you should do this. It's time, go through it. You haven't done it. It's the, the nacho, why have you not been baptized question. And it's, I never got around to it, okay? Um, and that's one of the elements that you see in, you know, in Nacho Libre, he baptizes him by smashing his face in the water because it's a good luck charm because uh, they're about to fight some uh, demon-possessed wrestlers. So he's like, we got to have all of our bases covered. Um, but what about the other side of the conversation um, about why you may not walk through the water? And, I, and I'll tell you, to be quite honest, the reason I hear people say that they aren't going to be baptized is because um, they've still got issues. <laughs> and I feel bad for laughing in their face because when do you not? Like, just honestly, when do you not have issues? When do you not have struggles? When do you not have wrestlings in your heart that are not God-honoring? When do you have, I mean, honestly. Because I think we have this idea that somehow if I get in that water, I'm going to leave it muddy for the next person. Like, seriously, so much grime is going to come off of me. Right? Like, we have this idea that when I get to a good place, when are you at a good place? <laughs> like, really? Can you just be realistic for a second? Like, when is it going to be good enough? When are you going to be good enough to walk through the waters of baptism? Like, we'll never be good enough. Right? We are our own worst critics. So if it was up to me, I probably would never do it because I have so many things wrong with me. If it was up to you, you'd probably never walk through it because you have so many things wrong with you, <laughs> right? But the question I have for us this morning is that if baptism is a declaration, and we believe it is, what is actually being declared and who's doing most of the talking? Like, we have to ask this question to rightly understand the gift, the strengthening, and the rejoicing that is a result because of baptism. And if I see it in any of those false views we just talked about, there's no gift there. There's no rejoicing there. Baptism becomes about me and not about what God has done. And so this morning, as we look at baptism in the picture of grace and understanding that I have access to God, not because of what I have done, but because of all that Christ has done, if that's true, baptism is a picture that points to that grace. And I think we have a severe misunderstanding in many ways of what actually is being communicated when we go under the water and when we come back up. If you've grown up in church, especially in the last 20 or 30 years, you've seen the church folks do it this way, right? If you'd like to respond to what you've just heard, 
heads bowed and your eyes closed, nobody looking around, raise your hands, right? You've heard that, right? Raise your hand. Or, or how about this one? Just raise your eyes and look up at me. Stare right at me. Let me know that you want to make a decision. Look right in my eyeballs, right? Because that's a really, really fun way to do things, right? <laughs> to stare at somebody, to communicate. <sighs> Please see me. Please make sure this sticks. Oh, he didn't see. You know, I don't know how it works. I don't understand it. But the church has been notorious about giving us as the people ways to tell God what we're going to do for him. We have set up cards, we have made prayers, we have done anything and everything, walking aisles, we have, we have done everything we can to make it possible for us to tell God what we're going to do for Him. And I think we have missed the opportunities to build upon what God has done for us. Like, we need to hear that declaration way more then we need to be busy declaring. And if the church honestly just falls in line with the rest of the world and becomes a place where all we do is say what we're going to do for God, we are just like everyone else in the world. And I say that because when we, as human beings, um, look at something, an affection have, we have an affection for it and a, and a desire for it, we begin to make all sorts of promises to a God about what we will do for that God. So that could be some other world religion, that could be some other world philosophy, that could be hardline atheists, because if, if I'm God, if I'm the end all, I will make promises to myself. We are full of making promises to our little g-gods. I mean, there were times I remember telling God, look, God, if you'll just get me out of this, I will do this with my life. God, if I make this last basket, it'll mean everything for me in the world. And we make promises and we make deals with all of our gods. We do. And honestly, that's the world's philosophy. But what if someone else's spoken promise matters to us more than our spoken promises to God? What if his promises to us found in Christ are more important than the promises I make to him. What if baptism becomes an opportunity not just to declare something or confess something, it actually becomes an opportunity to hear God speak over us, his promises. Now, we have to be very careful about what we make baptism. Baptism is not firstly about me telling God what I'm going to do for him. It's me receiving what he has done for me. There is a declaration going on in baptism. Do not be fooled. There is a confession going on during baptism. But it is firstly about what God has promised and done to, over, and through us. Baptism isn't so much about me declaring to God, I'm going to be different. It's actually hearing God tell me, you will be different. And there's a very different reception and receiving that goes on when we hear his words over us versus hearing our own words about what we want to do for him. Because we've all failed, right? 
Like, you remember those promises you made to God? You should be dead like 50 times, right? <laughs> God, I promise. God, I promise. If you get me out of this one, I promise. He's like, really? <laughs> I know your heart. I know what you're not capable of. Why don't you hear my promise? Why don't you hear my words? And in, in a very powerful, <laughs> through a very common element of a, of, of a pool of water, God speaks these very uncommon things to our heart. The entire series, we've been looking at these very common elements. We looked at preaching. We've looked at prayer. We, last week, uh, we looked at uh, the communion table, the, the bread and the juice. And this week, looking at the water. And I mean, to be quite honest, these things are so common, so normal, so ordinary. Yet when we gather... By the power of his spirit, he does a very uncommon work in us. By faith, we look at these things and we hear God's word and we pray honestly because God spoke first, we respond to his speaking in prayer. And because he told us to come to the table, the bread and the juice, we are reminded every time we take that meal that we did nothing to save ourselves. We did nothing of our own works. There is nothing I can do or say that will cover me more than the body and the blood of what Christ has done. The forgiveness of God made available in Jesus. And then when we go through these waters, it doesn't change change my tone. It doesn't say, now God, look what I'm doing for you. It still declares, look what God has done. That's the picture of scripture. Like every time you look through the psalmist's words, he's like, let me tell about what God has done. Every time there's a major victory in a battle, they're, let me tell you what God has done. We get into the New Testament. Let me tell you what God has done. Why would we change our tone when we walk through the water? Let me tell you what I've done. I've been baptized. Right? But it's what we do. We want to take credit. It's what our hearts long for. Like somehow now the baptism is my work, and I've done it. God, look at me. I'm good, right? No, in fact, we miss the power and the very uncommon work that goes on in our hearts when we believe somehow baptism is our commitment to God. It's a picture of his commitment to his people. God is the one who initiated this relationship, and we respond to him in all of these very common elements. Um, I know that as a church, people want to be um, known for the things that they do, but our story is not about what we do. Our story is about what God has done, and two very result, different results happen. When we become a church that decides to say, look at all we're doing, look at what I've done, look at my strength, look at these things, I'm telling you the result is the same every time and it's judgment and pride. They are tied to our decisions to make things about us. Judgment and pride are the results of boasting about what we can do before the Lord what we can do before man, what we can do before a community, they become central to us. And so we begin to point fingers at, look what they're not doing. Look what they're not doing. Look at them not measuring up. Look what I've done. Look what I've done. We post it on Twitter. We post it on Facebook. We post it on Instagram. We just want the approval of man. And you know what? You've gotten it. <laughs> but something strange happens when we keep the work not about us and about what God has done through Christ, humility, and thanksgiving are a very real result of a body of believers that will say, 
It's not about my work or what I've accomplished, but it is about the finished work of Christ on the cross. Two different results from two different goals. And the church was meant to be living in a place of humility and thanksgiving. So what message do you think the church has been broadcasting for the last 40 years? This is why we have to revisit and revisit and revisit and revisit and revisit the work of Christ. Because our hearts are so bent towards credit due us. And so as we continue in this series, I just want to pray. Because I believe if God will open our eyes to this, everything else changes. Father, I ask that in these moments... As we consider baptism, as we consider historically what has been called visible words, that your Holy Spirit would communicate to us just what you have done through talking about baptism. Lord, would you help us? Would you show us? Would you reveal to us? Would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we might hear from you this morning? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, preaching in prayer, uh, words go flying. They do. can't see those words, though. Historically, baptism and the Lord's Supper have been considered visible words. So the things we've talked about, we actually get to touch, taste, feel, smell, engage with. So communion and baptism are not just about words being spoken, but they're actually experienced. And so they're called visible words. They give imagery, and they introduce and reintroduce Christ to us every time we engage in these things. Christian baptism is... is, is understood to be a sign and a seal. Now, I want to show you a, a, a symbol really quickly, and I want to show you this symbol. It's a Batman symbol, right? Now, when that Batman signal goes up in the air, nobody really cares. I mean, like, Batman's supposed to show up, but it's not going to stop a robber from doing something bad just because he sees the symbol. He's going to be like, oh, look, there's a symbol. That's great. But there's a greater reality behind that symbol, Correct. This is the first image that popped up for Batman. Uh, the second one was actually when he was doing the Batusi, and I was like, that's not powerful. I can't show that picture. If you don't know about the Batusi, you're not a real superhero fan. Um, but that was the picture that popped up was Batman doing this. Uh, but, but really, no one's afraid of the symbol. Everyone's afraid of what that symbol represents. Like, no fear is struck into the heart of a criminal's mind or heart based on seeing that symbol. But when they see Batman game on, right? So in the very same way, when Christ is, in, in, is, is revealing baptism and baptism is talked about in scripture, it is this symbol that points to the greater reality. And that's how when Jesus taught in parables, when Jesus taught or there were stories or illustrations given, illustrations help us understand a greater reality, something that's bigger and grander, and we just can't really capture it all. We're trying to, but there's something greater that has gone on, and we have been given this gift to talk about this greater reality. And truly, the sign and the symbol that we look at in baptism, I just wish there was a giant red flashing neon light that we could attach to our bodies that just says gospel, 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 good news, good news, good news. That's what we are talking about in baptism. And it's not good news to believe that somehow this work 
is now my responsibility. It's good news to know that he has covered us. Baptism announces and testifies to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We talk about it when we go under the water, and it also, it's, it's a sign of us being united to that work. What has God done? What is he doing? And what has God said to us in baptism? And baptism takes a very public declaration that God promises to save whosoever will come and makes it very particular and places it over my heart and says, he has saved me. See, I think we like to generalize gospel statements because it's safe. Sin out there, God saves, he's big, he rescues. We like to say those things, but when we confess it, particularly because we have been saved, game changer. Because when I'm saying it, particularly that Jesus has rescued me, I'm saying that I am a sinner, I have wrestled, I have struggled, I have rebelled, but that in God's mercy and his kindness, he has come so close to me. We like to keep things general, but something happens particularly when we walk through those waters. Colossians chapter 2, listen to Paul's words. He says, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised. Now, this is a, a physical reminder of a very real relationship that God had with his people in the Old Testament. It marked them physically, but it was an understanding that they were now not their own. And so in the same way, we see circumcision talked about being set apart. When, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life, because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead. Because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In baptism, I am told my sin has been forgiven. My sin being and having need to be forgiven means that there has been a rift, there has been a tear, there has been a, a disconnect between me and God, and that needs to be restored. And the scripture tells us how that restoration happens. Listen to Isaiah chapter 53. All of us like sheep have strayed away, we have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Jeremiah 17 says the human heart is most deceitful of all things. This is why. I'm, I just want to tell you this is why. When you give people the wisdom, follow your heart, you are setting them up for disaster. I need you to hear me that if the scripture is true and God is who he says he is and he knows us better than we know ourselves, to tell someone to follow their heart, you are setting them up to believe something that might be true, that might not be true, be deceitful and wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? 
I'm not anti-emotions. In fact, I love that God gave us emotions and that we have them. But to just pass the buck and say, follow your heart, is to actually set them up for disaster if the scripture be true. Romans chapter 3 says this, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, like if he didn't step in, if he didn't move, we would still be in that. Yet God, in his grace, not mine, not yours, God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. Who did the making right in his sight? You? Me? No, he did it. Why do we keep trying to take credit for his work? Stop it. <laughs> Cut it out. Tell people that he did it. Stop telling people that you did it, okay? He freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us. Who freed us? Did you free you? No, he <laughs> freed us from the penalty for our sins. Baptism announces a pardon for my sin, your sin, past, present, future. If it was only for past sins, which some believe, then if I sin again, I need to come again with another remedy. And because it's not the water that cleanses me, it's Christ who makes us clean. Christ is always powerful, always enduring, and he is not affected by any stain or blemish that I may bring on myself. Baptism is for past, present, and future. This is why there are some people that I know that want to wait until the end of their days to be baptized because they want to make sure their record is clear. <laughs> but how do you know when the end of your days will be? Like, really? Come on. It's still me trying to play God. That's what we love to do. I'll do it when I'm close to dying. And God's like, really? <laughs> you know that date? You know that? I don't think you do. So when we are walking through baptism, it is a, it is a declaration that my sins have been forgiven. This is why we rejoice. Romans 5.11 says, now we can rejoice. Like, we can truly have joy. Why? In our wonderful new relationship with God, because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. He made us his friend. Like, he made us his friend. Some of y'all are working so hard to make yourself somebody else's friend, and it is not being returned. You are working so stinking hard to get the eyes of someone to be your friend, and it's not happening. But yet here we have the creator of the universe declaring, I want you to be my friend. And we're like, nah, whatever. I can't Instagram with you. I can't Instagram a picture of me meeting you. You know, like this is, this is what we do. The fact that he has made us friends with himself. That's why we rejoice. That's why we can rejoice. He's done the work. 
but it's not just about being forgiven. And I think this is where we would want to camp because honestly, it does. It deals with, with reconciliation and it makes us new and we're all like, okay, that's awesome. But that's not only what happens as we enter into this new relationship. Baptism is the physical reminder that we have also been united to Christ. And this is where our brother where art thou gets it wrong. Because basically, he goes under the water and takes care of all his past stuff, and he continues with his agenda. Okay? This is where things get different. In Romans chapter 5, listen to this. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well then... Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Some people would like to argue. Like some people would like to say, yeah, that sounds great. Paul says, of course not, with an exclamation point next to it. Of course not. Since we have died to sin... How can we continue to live in it? If you dead, son, you can't live in sin because you're dead to it. Not kind of dead. Dead. Meaning it no longer has control over you. It doesn't mean you're going to be sinless. It means you now have the power dwelling in you in Christ to go, that sin's not most valuable. That thing I'm chasing is not most valuable. That thing didn't lay its life down for me. In fact, I've been trying to die for that thing, and it's not given me anything in return. Jesus has covered me. He has made me new. And there is no more slavery to my sinful desires. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. There's an agenda change when he shows up and his grace marks us. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. You know, the wedding ring is an amazing gift to those in marriage. This ring, I, I can remember when Doreen and I were engaged and we got the rings. And I would just look at it, you know. It's like, I can't wait to have that on my finger. I can't wait for all that this ring represents. I can't wait. And see, we live in a very cynical and sarcastic world. And what people think when they see this ring is all the things you can't do. We live in a day and an age that looks at this and goes, man, that, ra that ring represents entrapment. It represents giving up all my good old days and saying goodbye to the boys and not saying goodbye to this or that. Do you think I gave a rip about any of that because I knew what was coming? When I looked at this ring, I knew 
that when it was on my finger, she was mine, and I'm hers. I belong to her, she belongs to me. See, I understand a cynical and sarcastic view of marriage, but when I understand belonging and that she chose me, because, you know, it was clearly, clear why, I mean. <laughs> no, it wasn't at all. <laughs> I'm the big idiot, so. But the price that was paid, the choosing and the belonging, in a very real way, this, this points to the greater reality of what marriage really is. The ring doesn't make me married, okay? But it reminds me of all the things that I gained going into this relationship. And I think some of us, we forget that. Not just about the wedding ring, but when we walk through baptism, all that we have gained because of what Christ has done being united to Christ and knowing and experiencing the grace of God, this does not encourage us to sin. It doesn't embolden us to sin more. It actually is a reminder for the one who is struggling with sin and could actually turn to doing good works to make up for the struggles that they've had. It is a reminder and a revealing and a lifter of the burden and the struggle of sin so that I don't get crushed into despair and confusion of what the gospel really is. So when I observe baptism or when I myself am baptism, baptized, I am reminded that there is no other work but that the work has been accomplished in the small but very important letter in the New Testament the book of Galatians Paul is writing to a struggling church that is already so quickly forgotten that the work is done in fact they're turning back to old ways because it's easier to understand rules and regulations and behavior than it is to understand I have been united to Christ and am in relationship with God. You and I would prefer rules, do's, and don'ts, but that's not what we were made for. We were made for relationship with God, and he's made a way so that we can have that. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul explains it this way. He says, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ. Like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now to give you a little background on this, it was understood in the Old Testament that as a set-apart people of God, I lived by the law and I lived by sacrifice. That's how right relationship was kept with God. I was invited into it, even in the Old Testament. Law was there, 
help me know his ways, help me know my character, help him know his character, help me know his character, and I wasn't going to be able to live up to it, so God gave a sacrifice. So in the Old Testament, it's this pattern. This is how you are set apart. This is how we know you. This is how we know you're his people. Well, you see a lot of, a lot of times in the Old Testament where you're like, really? Are they, are they really his people? Well, it's when they moved away from the law and sacrifice. And so in the New Testament, Paul is trying to explain the role of the law. And that the law was given to us to help us know we can't keep it. <laughs> but yet I see people driving with bumper stickers that say, keep the Ten Commandments. Guys, they were given to us to understand just how desperately we need the grace of God. They were, they were a guide for the Old Testament and for the, for the Israelites. They kept them under this relationship with God. But now this new way of faith, this thing of belief that Jesus is enough, is shocking. <laughs> it truly is shocking. The idea of putting on Christ means to come out from under being like the law, being a schoolmaster or a tutor in some respects, coming out from that relationship unto a father child relationship and they're very different see I believe that the law it covers us up but I believe Jesus covers us now how you say those things the tone really does matter when somebody asks me how am I doing if I say to them man I'm covered up you know what that means there's a lot on me there's a lot crushing me there's a lot of things going on but if somebody's like hey man how you doing and I say I'm covered totally different reality. The law, it does cover us up, and it's part of the reason I believe most of us don't stick around to hear the part of Jesus, because we're like, I don't need that law. In some ways, we were meant to say, I can't live that law. I can't. I don't need it. I need Jesus. I desperately need Christ, <laughs> and he does the work in us. In 1995, Joan Rivers asked some unsuspecting celebrities, who are you wearing? And that question caught on. And it's still asked to this day. And I, like, I, that was the thought. I, I, just, I, I Googled it, did some research, and just kind of, what, what does it mean? And why did that question matter? And does it matter at all? And, and honestly, journalists and designers have been so thankful for that question. Who are you wearing? Simply because when someone says, who are you wearing, the actor or the star on the red carpet gives credit to the one who covered them for that evening, right? Jason, who are you wearing? Goodwill. <laughs> who are you wearing? But it also, it also gives more work to the design team that put those outfits together. And to be honest, if our answer is, who are you wearing? Christ gives credit, and it gives him more work. <laughs> you ever thought about that? <laughs> it's a beautiful picture of what Christ does just by saying, I've put on Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, though, Miss Sue alluded to it this morning, that we do not just belong to Christ, but we belong to each other. 
Verse 28 says, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I need to make very clear that these words don't strip us of these outward identities, making them no longer important. I am a Gentile. I was born into a country free, and I am a male. But historically, society has used these physical markings to divide, to build walls, and to cause separation. If Christ is able to unite us to God, an impossible work apart from him, then for sure he is able to unite us together. Baptism is a visible marking that I belong to the church and I will no longer allow any of these outside forces to cause division in my life. I will no longer allow my outward identities to cause walls or separation, but truly we do belong to one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Don Whitney, uh, a man who's had a lot of influence in spiritual growth and transformation in the life of Christ followers, helping us understand the habits, says when God brings a person into spiritual life, that person enters into the spiritual and invisible body of Christ, the universal church. I'm sorry. When that spiritual experience is pictured in water baptism, that is the individual's symbolic entry into the tangible and visible body of Christ, the local church. See, I cannot express my unity with Christ without the body. And I know there's a mentality and an idea that I've been baptized into Christ and I'm part of the universal church. Well, do you, do you extend forgiveness to anybody? Nope, because I don't need anybody. Do you, do you get grace from anybody? Nope, because I don't need anybody. Do you extend hospitality and mercy to anybody? Nope, because I don't need anybody. You cannot express unity with Christ without the body of Christ. And it is why when we are baptized, we are not just baptized into Christ, but into his body of believers. Through this strange, eclectic, broad brush stroke of people, as I participate in faith, I grow in grace. Grace is not grown in a vacuum. It needs to breathe. It needs people to be cultivated. As we close this morning, the world is full of places that make statements about what we are going to do for God. The church must remain a place that announces what God has done for us. And through our very common, ordinary practices, we make known that story. In witnessing baptism, for those of you that have been baptized, we don't just sit and twiddle our thumbs or leave early. We are observing the greatest of miracles that can go on. A hard heart turned to flesh, responsive to the Lord. And as we watch the gospel on display, as we watch the water stirred, as we watch people come up soaking wet, we actually understand our baptism more and more. You may have been baptized for one of these many reasons that we talked about earlier, but the more and more you begin to understand, you begin to go, that's what, that's what was being said on my day. 
That's what it means to know his grace. So the person that comes up out of the water isn't declaring, hey world, I'm living for Jesus now and I have no intentions of screwing up. The person coming up out of the water has heard the words, you belong to me, I've made you new, you are family, you'll be different now because I will empower the way you live and you are covered. I love how when Jesus came up out of the baptismal waters, it wasn't him going, hey father, look what I've done. It was actually God going, that's my son. I'm really pleased with him. I love who spoke first. God did. And in baptism, we learn that same story. And so this morning, I don't know where you've journeyed from. I don't know where you've come from. But I know that in Acts chapter 2, Peter's proclamation says, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Baptism is a gift that serves our faith before God but it's also our confession before men. If you are here and you're saying, that's my next step, we have clothes that you can change into, we've got towels, or you can just walk through. But we ask three questions when we baptize here at Highland. We ask the first, do you believe that Jesus is the rescuer? God said he would send one. And we ask people if they, they're agreeing with what God has said he's already done. Second one is, do you believe that he's died? And he's risen from the dead. Because there's some, you can believe that somebody died, but to truly say this is a declaration of a supernatural act done on my behalf in history. So do you believe that he's risen from the dead? Because a dead Savior cannot save you. A living Savior saves us. It's just agreeing with what God has already said. And then the last one is our saying, God, it is my desire to follow you all the days of my life. And that is our confession before men. That is what we get to say. And so from now, today, and then next several weeks, if that's something you need to pray through and that's your next step, we want to make it available to you. So we're going to go into a time of communion this week. And we're going to do it as we did last week. Um, Tim set the stage for it very nicely. Um, we're going to have four stations set up here. And during communion and during worship, if you're saying, I'd like to be baptized, you can come right over here and take the clothes, and I'll meet you right there. If not, that's okay too. Um, but we're going to take communion in a special way, uh, and we're actually going to ask that as you take communion, you take it, and then you turn, and you serve it. And so we're going to do that, and it is a visual reminder of how Christ has met us, we get to meet others as well. And so whether you're a... Highlander regular or not, I don't, it doesn't matter. We're asking if, that, if you have found faith in Christ, you may come, take this meal, and then turn and extend it to the person behind you. Just to say, Jesus has extended this to me, and I want to extend it to you. Father, we love you, and I ask that in these next few moments, as we take visible reminders of your grace to us, that your grace would be communicated.
God, and it would be so strong to transform us into the image of your son. It would cause a change in our desires. It would cause a change in the way we see others. It would cause a change in the way we see our marriage, our children, our workplace, our school, anywhere you would send us. Would it be the transformative act in our lives? And God, could it start today? It's in your name we pray.